You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. What's it like to work in conservation in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, Australia? Ian Allen is the Supervisor of Natural Areas and Arboriculture at the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens in Mount Tomar, and he was on the front lines with the Wollamai Pine Rescue Mission during the summer bushfires of 2019. In this episode, we talk about the climate of the Blue Mountains, the conservation work he's a part of at the Botanic Gardens, and his experiences ensuring the future of the famous Wollamai Pine. G'day Ian, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Daniel. It's exciting. I think we were just talking before we started then just about how, how awesome it is, the, the niche you've filled for Australian horticulture and planty people like me that need to hear all of this stuff and just love love all things horticulture. And yeah, I've, I've been really interested and inspired listening to your back catalogue. So really appreciate you taking the time to get me on. Thanks for the positive feedback, Ian. Yeah, definitely. Like like I was saying, like we make this for the freaks. This isn't for the normal people. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all we all wear that plant geek badge with pride. Absolutely. So Ian, can you start us off by telling us what conditions and microclimates make the Blue Mountains unique? Yeah, yeah, it's a, an interesting question. I guess sort of to, to wind it back a notch, um, in general, there's the, the Blue Mountains, um, which is just for, for those of you around Australia or maybe even other parts of the world that aren't familiar with it, it sort of sits... A, about an hour and a half, two hours drive west of Sydney on the east coast of Australia. And it's just one small section of the Great Dividing Range that runs almost the entire length of the east coast of Australia, right up into Queensland, all the way down through to um, into Victoria. And the Blue Mountains, it's, it's famed for its name, um, which comes from this blue hue that sits over it. So when you see it from a distance, particularly from Sydney, um, there's a whole bunch of um, vapors and, and I mean, on a more molecular level, these little chemicals and things that are that are sort of transpired by the eucalypts that are the dominant tree species right up all around the sort of Australia. And yeah, they actually float in the water vapor in in in, in the air, and from a distance they refract the blue light. So you see this sort of really grey blue color, um, and hence the name, the Blue Mountains. So then, even these things, as you drill down into that, the blue is sort of linked with this this big mountain range, which in Australia it's big. Uh, it's not big like anywhere else in the world. It's it's The highest part is about a, a 1,050 metres um, in the actual Blue Mountains itself. And whilst that's not high for everywhere else, it's pretty high for Australia, a, a really ancient continent. And that that sort of forms this big buffer of weather systems down the east coast of Australia, and you get this moist coastal air meeting the dry western air. So you get high rainfall um, with coupled with the altitude, um, you sort of get that the cooler climates and these other things. But then in particular, there's these this change of geology. So you've got these sandstone ridgetops, these ancient skeletal sandstone soils up high, right down into these deep rainforesty gullies. So you get this incredible sort of mix of biodiversity. Um, I'm not sure it's, if it's an official biodiversity hotspot, um, but all of those things coupled with the deep, rich cultural heritage, uh, you know, it's probably really a good time right now just to acknowledge 
that I am speaking to you from the uh, the land of the Darug people, and we acknowledge and pay respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And we acknowledge that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And the Blue Mountains is is a real cultural hotspot. All through it, there is these amazing Aboriginal heritage sites, rock art, um, things that we don't really understand as um, as colonial occupiers of the land. But those things were acknowledged and and all joined together along with these amazing geographic and um, climatic conditions and biodiversity conditions to lead to the Greater Blue Mountains World Heritage Wilderness Area. <laughs> That's the official name being acknowledged as such by UNESCO back in, two, in the year 2000. So that sort of set this framework around um, the national park system. You know, the Blue Mountains itself has these two incredible national parks called um, the Blue Mountains National Park and the Wallamai National Park to the north. And that we're just so lucky that two hours west of Sydney, we've got this like millions of hectares of the most incredible quality national park in this Greater Blue Mountains World Heritage Area. And then it just so happens that the Blue Mountains Botanic Garden, which is a satellite garden of the Royal Botanic Gardens and Domain Trust, um, the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney, and then our other sister garden, the Australian Botanic Gardens Mount Annan. Uh, the Blue Mountains Botanic Garden sits right in the middle of that Greater Blue Mountains World Heritage Wilderness Area. So we sit on top of Another unique little spot within that, which is the, this incredible basalt mountain, which is Mount Tomar. And, you know, this, these million, million year old um, geological formations where they're sort of related to the erup- volcanic eruption points all up the east coast of Australia as, as the continent of Australia drifted north millions of years ago, left these incredible volcanic little plugs and outcrops. And the Blue Mountains Botanic Garden sits on top of one of those. And just provides this incredible sort of bio-refuge where we can grow all sorts of things, we can conserve all sorts of things um, that you just can't sort of do in many other places in Australia. So that's kind of what makes it all special. Sorry, that was a very, very long-winded <laughs> answer to your question. And um, But, yeah, it's we're just so privileged that we've got such a, a special place for, to have a botanic gardens in a, in a special place itself. Yeah, it is a special place. So, Ian... I guess there are quite a few threats to the wildlife there, right? So I think in recent memory, a lot of people probably can remember the bushfires, but what are some of the other threats other than the bushfires that are really taking a toll on the area and that you're really trying to work to mitigate? Yeah, so I guess, you know, uh, the the reality that we're all facing and that everyone's so aware of now is is the, the biggest threat, um, if you boil it down, is humans. And we, the Blue Mountains... The World Heritage Area itself is sort of bisected by these two two main roads, in particular one big road, which is the main western highway that runs from Sydney out into in towards Western Australia, really. And along that is is the epicenter of all the human habitation up in the mountains. The Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens actually sits over on the northern side on a slightly different road with lower population, but very similar. It's it's this uh, big highway with all the townships along it. And they are all at the top of the ridgelines and all of those ridgelines feed their water catchments. Everything goes downslope into the valleys in that World Heritage Area into the national parks. So everything that humans do at the top of those areas has a downstream effect um, and be that 
simple things like what goes down the drains can easily end up down there, um, right through to visitation, tourism, people um, people clearing land, people cutting down firewood. Um, and luckily where those areas are protected by being a part of the New South Wales National Park Estate, but even still, it's very hard to protect what rolls downhill sometimes. So right through those areas, um, there is sort of lots of work in place in collaboration with councils, um, agencies like ours, the Royal Botanic Gardens and Domain Trust, New South Wales National Parks, and to to protect the, the waterways, um, to protect weed threats into that national park estate, um, and also to protect the transport of pathogens, um, some of which um, we'll probably talk about in a bit, um, pose a huge risk, like in particular things like Phytophthora cinnamomi, which is a water mould that can easily be moved on the unsuspecting visitor's boots um, or shoes. Um, they can walk it into those natural areas and those things can lead to huge dieback events in the, in the bush and actually actually kill, you know, potentially hundreds of hectares. And, and around Australia, there are evidenced um, dieback events from similar water moulds to that, if not that one. And, um, you know, it's a big problem all around Australia because of how sensitive our natural areas are. Yeah, that's not good. What about animals? Are there any sort of pest animals, whether that's herbivorous or carnivorous and even pets? Yeah, there, there are, you know, and it, it's interesting you say that. I mean, it's important more and more as I come from the horticulture background, I'm very much thinking about plants and focusing on plants. But in, in conservation and in particular how we think about these, protecting these wild areas and wilderness areas, we're thinking more ecologically and holistically about the animals as well. Um, so, and you also touched on the bushfires. And just to link that in a little bit, I guess we, since the bushfires, so north of where the Blue Mountains Botanic Garden sits um, is the Wallamai National Park. And in the black summer fires of 2019, 2020, we saw millions of hectares of wilderness consumed by those bushfires. Um, there was a big array of uh, intense fire right through to lower intensity fire. Um, but huge amounts of habitat destruction, some of it temporary um, through the natural parts of the, what fire does to the landscape and the ecology out there. But because of the frequency of that, those, these fires and some of the intensity of them, there was, you know, and a lot has been reported on this in the media, there was huge loss of native animal numbers. Um, but then there was also a situation created where the pressure from some of the pest animals that are out there. So all through these areas, there are, there are deer, there are cats, um, and there are all sorts of these um, nasties, even some of the bird species. And there's also some non-invasive pests or some native pest animals that the balance has been tipped and that situation's allowed this creep of these invasive or pest animals to come into the landscape. And we witnessed it firsthand, like the, the fire actually came all the way up into the, the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens. It, it, we manage approximately 250 hectares of the uh, of almost pristine bushland that abuts the National Park Estate, and about 95% of that was burnt um, and burnt quite intensely. And we saw the creep of all the native species coming up into the garden. Um, a little portion of our living collection and our, our exotic collection was burnt, but 
the rest of it almost became this haven for bird species. Um, our conifers provide a food source for threatened animals like the gangan cockatoo, the black cockatoo, and all these other things. And we saw those animals coming up to where it was lush and green um, when everything else around it was charred black. But then we also started to see encroachment of some pest species like deer and cats and foxes and things coming up through the burnt areas in the natural estate and seeing those things that could be predating on on the native fauna that was left. And that's something we sort of work away at. Um, the national parks and the, the government programs do and local land services do incredible work out there to manage those pest species in, in their estates around us. Um, and we're starting to develop pest animal management programs, um, working with some ecologists to sort of assess what's out there and start to focus on those things. But yeah, it's all interlinked, you know, and, and mm-hmm. it, it really is like um, if we can manage those those pests on our estate, then we can also see some improvement out there in our surrounding wilderness. Absolutely. Look, we've talked about the bushfires. I think that this is something that really hurt a lot of Australians to actually see this happen in the beautiful Blue Mountains. Can you tell us, is this something that the Blue Mountains have adapted for? Like you mentioned, the frequency is a real issue over there. And how is that recovery going? Yeah, um, like I mentioned, an interesting thing was, I mean, as as most people, I think it became global news about the 2019-2020 Black Summer Fires, uh, you know, the east coast of Australia felt like it was on fire. Um, and the, the, the range of intensity and the damage that the fires did, did vary. Um, there were some areas where there was some low intensity fire um, that might have been just what the bush had evolved with but then there were also because of the loss of indigenous fire management in the land over 200 years plus of colonization um the absence of a fire regime that Mm. with that cultural burning um the australian bush had absolutely evolved with that and evolved with frequency of fire as part of how these plants respond and grow and all these ecosystems um develop and what was different was the black summer fires came off the back of an incredibly intense drought period. Um, the weather systems that we, it all seems that science is suggesting they are climate change induced um, that have changed, have led to this, the scale of the fires, the intensity of the fires and what we think we're ex- expecting in the future is the increased frequency of the fires isn't what the bush has evolved with. And therefore we're going to see significant ecological change or damage and there are lots of threatened species out there where fire is actually and the frequency of those fires is one of the key threats to those species and be that the i'll probably again stay in my lane a bit i don't know as much about the animal species i'm more the plants guy but um in particular the sort of an incredible example of that is is the story of the wallamai pine um, and there's been a fair bit that's been publicised about that. So, yeah, the, the the threat that to the to that critically endangered species from increased fire frequency is very real, um, and that's just one of them out there in in the World Heritage Wilderness area. Absolutely, in I'd love to have a chat about the Willamai pines soon because they are absolutely breathtakingly beautiful and so interesting too. But before we get there, can you tell us about the nursery that you guys have on site there? 
Yeah, sure can. So um, I guess I, I touched on it before. Our, our nursery is just one element of, of what our botanic gardens do. And, and I'll go into that a little bit. Um, but we're a part of, we have three gardens. Um, I mentioned before as part of the Royal Botanic Gardens and Domain Trust. And across our three sites, we have these three incredibly different and amazing gardens that serve different purposes in some ways, um, but yet are all aligned in, in our programs and what we do. And we have an incredible nursery at the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney, um, which has a quarantine facility that's in a registered quarantine facility with the Australian department that manages that. And then we have our incredible garden over at the Australian Botanic Garden, Mount Annan, and they've just actually built a new state-of-the-art um, nursery that as part of their development of relocating the herbarium. So I think it's, it's the National Herbarium of Australia um, where we've moved that over there with the Australian Plant Bank, which is our seed bank, and the Australian Institute of Botanical Science as a sort of centre for a lot of our conservation and science work. And then up at Blue Mountains, whilst our nursery is a little bit smaller um, and a little bit older than these those new facilities, it, it also plays a critical role. So between our three sites, we coordinate all of these projects for plant conservation and we can we therefore have, you know, one facility that is right down on the coast at, at almost sea level out to a, a, a nursery that's in Western Sydney that has completely different climatic conditions um, and right up to our facility at the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens, Mount Tomar, which sits at about 1,000 metres, gets very cold winters and and allows us to propagate and grow other things that we just couldn't grow at the other sites. So between the three, um, they can achieve incredibly good things and, and we're very lucky and unique in Botanic Gardens um, certainly in Australia, if not around the world, where we've got those three facilities. Um, and, yeah, they, they, we've got these incredible horticulturists um, that manage those facilities and work in there along with our scientists. And um, whilst our nursery at Mount Tomer is small, um, they do have some scientific collections that unfortunately the public can't necessarily access that our scientists work on. But they're also, we often call them the wheelhouse of the botanic gardens. So... A lot of people don't even know what the role of botanic gardens, but you know we we manage living collections um, for science and conservation, as well as to show the general public um, these amazing plants from around the world. And our nurseries specialise and focus on propagating all of these unique and rare things. Um, some of the work is just to propagate the things that are really hard to grow and secure the really rare collections. Mm. So we might have a few plants. Of we have certain we even have a couple of species that are extinct in the wild, um, and they only exist in botanic gardens around the world. And we have a few of those where we might have one or two plants of those planted in the garden. Um, they're, they're they're so rare, and we need to make sure that we've got some stock sitting in the nursery in the in the back rooms just in case something ever, ever happens to them. We often do that sort of work with plants that have been wild collected or sourced by either scientists or botanists or plant collectors um, or horticulturists from botanic gardens around the world and and in Australia and New Zealand, they might send us some things and we all try to work together to safeguard our collections. And yeah, the nurseries are the people that sort of make that happen. And then 
you know, like a little, little nursery for it truly is a nursery, like little babies in, in intensive care and, and our nursery staff do these incredible jobs, grow these things up and then our horticulturists get them out there into our gardens to hopefully um, secure them, grow them on for science, conservation, collecting plant material from to, to safeguard or and to show the general public these amazing plants. So, yeah, nurseries, that's the key. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's completely invaluable just from an ecological and conservation standpoint. But like just the general public, like could I just walk into the nursery and buy some of those rare endemic plants and have a go in my own yard? Um, yeah. So whilst you can't walk into our nurseries, um, they're, they're sort of back of house and, and carefully. We've got lots of hygiene processes to make sure that we don't bring diseases or pests mm. into them. Um we do through all three of our gardens. We actually we have a fantastic um, volunteer organisation called the Foundation and Friends, and they support all the work we do and generate income and and revenue for us through volunteering, philanthropy, and they have a fantastic group called the Growing Friends. And the Growing Friends are all these wonderfully generous volunteers, and they at each of our gardens they volunteer on certain days and they grow plants up and they actually run a plant sales um, system at, at the front door to each of our visitor centers. And that's the best thing about that is, is unlike your average Bunnings nursery um, or, or sort of garden center, <laughs> they get, they get to sort of have the pick of some of these wonderful things in our collections, but they also play an instrumental role in, in the conservation of the genetic material out there. So again, we're, we're probably going to talk about the wall of my pine a bit more in depth soon, but, Wall of My Pine is one great one where our foundation and friends over the years have have grown those and sold them through our plant sales so that everybody can have the opportunity to have a Wall of My Pine in their backyard. And you can do that and you can buy it from the front door and it actually puts money back into our botanic gardens. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about the New South Wales government program called Save Our Species as well? Yeah, so it's... A program that's been running for quite some time now, by, by as a New South Wales government initiative, and it it's essentially a multi-agency program that sort of runs out of our Department of Planning and Environment, and it it's an initiative by the New South Wales government, and I think its aim is something like to increase the number of threatened species that are secure and protected over the next hundred years, and it gets fantastic funding. Um, it's it's, I think it's currently got an initiative of a hundred million dollars over the next uh, five years mm. to to work on that. And it's not just plants; it's it's also uh, fauna, animals, and ec- endangered ecological communities. Which, for those of your listeners that might not be familiar with that, that's essentially a way of um, it might be a group of plants and animals in a very specific soil type or, or microclimate, and that there's about a hundred of those that are listed as um, threatened or endangered in New South Wales. Mm. And some of the more known ones are things like the Cumberland Plain Woodland. Um, Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens actually managed one called Blue Mountains Basalt Forest, which is a unique one related to the basalt soils I was talking about before. And Save Our Species program works with all of these agencies. Um, so it, it's this, it really is this wonderful example of conservation work um, that involves 
all the multi-skilled areas where there's so many specialists involved coming together under this umbrella of SOS, Save Our Species. Um, we've got botanists, ecologists, horticulturists, nursery staff, you know, even through to people that do marketing and communication of all the wonderful work they do, all coming together to to secure funding, to then to work tirelessly to secure and, and save these species out there. And they all sort of come together and then they identify these key projects. They work with CSIRO to use um, really amazing software and science-based systems to identify the highest priorities out there. And then they work and, and they do everything from simply, sometimes simply going out there and collecting um, some of the rarest things out there to secure them in botanic gardens or, or I think they work with Taronga Zoo as well. Um, right through to these incredibly complex projects that to re-establish wild populations of things that might be critically endangered out there in the national parks estates. Um, and it they're often multi-generational too. These things are aimed at mm. the real big picture and, and they really are instrumental in saving what's out there. And yeah, it's exciting. And the Botanic Gardens, Royal Botanic Gardens and Domain Trust, we play a, a role in that. Um, particularly about plant conservation. Our scientists from the Australian Institute of Botanical Science do all the sort of deep molecular stuff and genetic work and things on that. Our horticulturists do the growing and propagation of plants for those and provide plants out there into Save Our Species Run projects. And um, yeah, it's kind of really exciting. Um, something that when I got into Botanic Gardens Horticulture, I, I, I didn't think, ever really think about. Um, I come from more of a horticultural maintenance background, arboriculture, and um, bit by bit have got into this more land management, natural areas, and con plant conservation work. And it's just amazing. Just before we met, I was I was in a meeting um, to do with some work that's funded in part with the federal government, but also Save Our Species program um, to do with myrtle rust and and a really really mm. critically endangered species called rhodomyrtus sidioides and yeah multi-agency work looking at how we can secure that across all the botanic gardens in its range and um and also use it to figure out how to tackle the threat of myrtle rust that's that's an imported um plant fungi that a rust fungi that is affecting and threatening myrtaceae family which is basically what the most dominant plant family in Australia, all our eucalypts are myrtaceae. And then there's these really mm. rare rainforesty things that like rhodomotus that are really susceptible to it. And that's the kind of stuff Save Our Species does. It's exciting and wonderful. It is exciting and wonderful. Like, I mean, I guess I really want to get to all my pine and I'm we've sort of teased <laughs> it and I think people are like, they want to hear about it. But before we get there, let's just talk generally about um, some of the at-risk endemic plant species that you guys have in the Blue Mountains. Can you just give us a couple of examples beyond the Woolamai pine before we get to that one? Yeah, for sure. Um, we, we always, up at the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens, we always like to fly the flag of um, the Woolamai pines. Uh, you know, I, I, some people might not like the way I say this, but the, the bastard stepchild, um, it's kind of like <laughs> This, this less sexy little thing called the dwarf mountain pine. And it's a, it's called Ferris Ferra Fitzgeraldii. And it used to be called Microstrobus Fitzgeraldii. And it's this dwarf conifer. Um, and it's only, there's only about 600 of them left in the wild. And it's found on 
this is this is why it's really kind of weird and unique is it's only found in the spray zone on south facing waterfalls from around Wentworth Falls in the Blue Mountains through west of there to sort of Mount Victoria and potentially some other outlying populations um, all in this small small area in the Blue Mountains and the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens has sort of been involved over the years in collecting that and um, and propagating it and making sure we've got a, a collection of it. Um, we've worked with local schools um, that do some really cool stuff with their kids because they're like, because this thing grows in the spray zone of the waterfalls, everything that goes down the drain in those areas around Katoomba or Wentworth Falls all threatens um, the dwarf mountain pine. And the kids are really actively involved over at Katoomba Public School and a few of the other schools in in being aware of that. Um, but also our growing friends grow it and we sell it out the front door of the Botanic Gardens. And I, I hate to say it's probably a dirty confession, but um, I've killed a lot of them. I've bought them and taken them <laughs> home and tried to grow them in my bathroom. Um, and, you know, but that's the wonderful thing about the fact, you know, there's, there's no trying to grow these things, trying to learn how to grow them. It's a cool little example of of that work, and and then there's some other great species. There's a a few eucalypts, so Eucalyptus copulans, which is a an endangered species in New South Wales, and it's from a very small area in the Blue Mountains. Um, and a couple of little acacias, Acacia maiantha, and a few little shrubby things like Leonema lacnioides. Um, and there's again some work that Save Our Species has done, and the Botanic Gardens has been involved in. But sadly, there's just there's a lot out there. There are, there are a lot of species that are threatened or endangered or critically endangered in, in New South Wales and, and of course, all around the world, um, which is, I'll, I'll segue into this one for you, but the, the of course, the Wallamai pine. Um, you know, you need these big name species. We, we often refer it to it as it's the gateway, the gateway plant mm. to plant conservation in Australia. Um, it's the poster child. It's the, it's the sexy big story that gets everybody thinking about this stuff and and gets people passionate about supporting plant conservation. So. Absolutely. So the Woolamai pine, it's actually referred to as a dinosaur tree or an ancient relic. Why is that? I mean, like, I imagine that, you know, all the trees are the same age as the trees next to them. Why is it called a dinosaur tree? Yeah, so I guess it, it ties into the the story of the Woolamai pine, which is, it, it really it's got everything it's it's this amazing story um so for for your listeners that don't know it and i often make the mistake of assuming of course everybody knows about the wallamai pine but basically the wallamai pine is this ancient conifer that was only discovered to certainly to 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 western science and horticulture um it was discovered in 1994 in a remote canyon a, a couple of hundred kilometres northwest of Sydney in the Wallamai National Park by a New South Wales Parks ranger who was out there canyoning um, in his spare time exploring the National Park, uh, a guy called David Noble. And the botanic name of Wallamai Pine is Wallamai Nobilis or Nobilis, and that's named after David. And he came through this canyon and it he he sort of saw these leaves on the ground. He saw these trees and thought, hang on, this is really, really weird. Um, I, it doesn't look like it belongs here. Um, it, it looks very strange. So he, he grabbed some leaf material and he knew some botanists that worked for the Royal Botanic Gardens uh, Sydney and at the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens. 
And he took them this material and they straight away thought, hang on, this is this is really odd. This is something really, really interesting. And um, But they couldn't figure out exactly what it was. They knew that it was related to either Araucaria, which is like the the sort of Norfolk Island pines that you see on the beaches in places like um, Coogee and Manly in, in Sydney, or related to Agathus, the cowrie pines in New Zealand. Um, and But they, they weren't sure. They did all their sort of um, taxonomic sort of identification on, on it. And one of the chief botanists in Sydney said, if you can get hold of a, a cone, then I'll be able to tell mm. if it's related, it, which one it is, because there's things to do with the way the seed are in the cones of these trees. And so this is way back in the 90s. You've got to remember where I think health and safety might not have been quite the same, <laughs> but um, the guys from National Parks took a helicopter out there and a guy hung out of the helicopter. They hovered right down over this canyon. And these canyons are incredible, you know. So the Wallamai pine grows to about 30 plus, 40, around 40 metres. They, they're down in these deep sandstone canyons. They got right down there in the helicopter and this guy leant out the door and he broke off a cone and probably almost fell out while he was doing it. And they flew it back, got it to the botanists, and the botanist, they dissected this thing and straight away went, hang on a second, this isn't Araucaria, this isn't Agathus, this is something completely different. And the only thing that it was similar to was something that was known, it was an ancient ancestor that had only been seen in the fossil record, and um, which is, I think it's Agathus jurassica. Um, and ba- so basically that fossil came from s- sort of around the, the time of the dinosaurs. So... You know, the story was was sort of kept secret for a while because this thing was so special. There's only about 70 to 100 of these trees in the wild. At the time when it was discovered, they only knew there was one population of it. There's since been four little populations found, but through combing the national parks, there is only four groups of them. And like I said, there's only a, about less than 100 trees in the wild. And these things were likened to a dinosaur. They, they were from a type, a lineage of plants that at one point used to dominate the continent of Australia and has since been forced into through cl- like long-term climate change, through fire, through all sorts of things, through, through the continent of Australia becoming hotter and drier over time and being dominated by eucalypts, has been forced into these tiny little niches. Um and it was likened to finding a dinosaur, um, two you know, two hundred kilometres northwest of Sydney, you know, the, the most popular city in Australia, and there was this thing sitting deep down in there, and and it was not found until nineteen ninety four. Um, but since then, our amazing scientists, botanists, all these people, um, incredible work with national parks, with the Save Our Species people, um, all sorts of agencies have managed to secure and protect the genetic material of that by propagating it and distributing it around the world. I think they, when they first found it, they, they propagated up and there was a Sotheby's auction. They sold these plants and people took them to Kew Gardens in England, um, all around the world. Um, and that sort of secured the genetic material of it. But these trees and the natural populations of them are still under threat. And unfortunately, one of the biggest threats aside from bushfire, which we'll probably talk about shortly, but is the pathogen I mentioned earlier, um, Phytophthora cinnamomai, which is a water mold. And it's thought that that pathogen may have been taken 
into those wild sites on the, the shoes of some unsuspecting bushwalkers that may have gone there to try and find those wild sites once the story was out. Um, the, the agencies that manage this, they, they keep the sites incredibly secret and guarded because of just how important these trees are and because of that pathogen. And that pathogen has, has impacted the trees really heavily. And unfortunately, it's, it's an incredibly hard pathogen to manage. There's no cure to it. You can't just treat it with a fungicide. There's only things that help fortify the plants against it. Um, so all the work that's done in those sites and around it, um, there's incredible hygiene protocols that, that, are, mm-hmm. that are done to keep, keep that out of there. Um, so yeah, that's the sort of the story of the wall of my pine. And it's, I get, like I said, it's the poster child for plant conservation and, you know, so much work has been done to, to protect it and save it. And the things that we've learned out of that are just incredible. And, and they, they inform all plant conservation and, and all conservation work, um, in Australia and if not globally, really amazing. Mm. So I suppose what you're saying is that there are these patches of the Blue Mountains where this ancient relic, this dinosaur tree, has somehow managed to hold its own against all the competition from especially flowering plants. Um, Like they're notoriously weak, like you said, like against pests. Does that have something to do with the fact that they largely have remained unchanged for so long? Yeah, as far as I know, and, and I'll be careful not to say something that that our wonderful scientists might call me out <laughs> on as, as being inaccurate, but um, yeah, it, it certainly does. I mean, you know, as you can imagine, these these plants over you know, if maybe millions of years have been forced into these niches, but also that's led to very few individuals of them, um, limited genetic diversity. Um, we our teams, so there's. There's a team called the Wallamai Pine Recovery Team, which is a combination of national parks scientists, um, Department of Environment scientists, our our very own botanists and scientists. They're constantly working on on this species and, and trying to figure it out. And our geneticists have done incredible work on the diversity, the genetic diversity within the species, and mm. with modern technology, have actually shown that. Whilst there's still very limited genetic diversity in the wild populations, there's a little bit more than we thought, um, particularly after the discovery of, of the fourth um, group of them, um, the fourth population of them. But yeah, that that ancient lineage, these things evolved without de- evolving natural defences to some of those um, diseases and pathogens that they could potentially be exposed to. Um, and that's, you know, sort of this real example of, of evolution in action but also what happens when we introduce these other threats to them um they just haven't got the defense mechanism against against a mold like that and and the pressure that is being placed on them in terms of their cultural needs to grow um by climate change and and the the other the warming and heating and and wild weather events and fires and all these other things are just compounding factors on on that exposure in their genetics i guess so you mentioned part of your work is about fortifying the plants. It's not about eradicating the disease. How? What does that look like? Like, how do you fortify a wool of my pine? Yeah. So I mean, there's this one ongoing work. We have a plant pathology team, um, and right through from the beginning of the work on the wool of my pine since their discovery. And when they realized there was this pathogen, um, some of our wonderful scientists, um, Dr. Brett Summerall, Dr. Kathy Offord, um, 
Dr. Ed Liu, these these people working with these incredible um, our horticultural science team and assistants, Maureen Phelan, and then other departments, um, Baron McKenzie, Heidi Zimmer. There's just these. I, I sort of feel I need to acknowledge these names, and and I, I don't want to miss anyone out. But these people have worked tirelessly to figure out um, how to protect these plants, and some of that's involved using um, doing experiments and research on the best. Uh, chemicals and things that they can use to try to um, protect these plants. And, and essentially they use a, a phosphoric acid, um, a bit like your, your anti-rot that you can buy at Bunnings to, to stop your lemon tree from, from rotting. Um, but because of the difficulties in a wild wilderness area of applying that, you can't go in there and just drench all the soil in it. You can't go and do these things like um, the potential risks to other parts of that ecosystem are too high. They've worked in figuring out, and they, the work goes on in how they can apply those um, chemicals. Whether they can, uh, you know, apply them in a different way through spraying. What what the best chemicals are, but really a lot of it boils down to prevention. So every scientist that goes into these places, and I'm privileged enough to have been able to go into one of the wild populations. There's a there's a joke in Wallamai Pine work that basically you end up associating the species with the smell of methylated spirits because <laughs> our scientists have shown that the, the best thing to to spray down and um, and sterilize equipment with is a is a solution of 70% methylated spirits and 30% water so before you even set foot in these places every single thing that is going to touch the ground um, it has to be sprayed down your boots, um, any any tools, any equipment. When you're in there, there's really complex processes and spray points. Um, you have to work through the areas in a in a set direction. Um, if you fall over, you have to get your butt sprayed. Um, everything uh. gets sprayed, and it 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 works. And it it takes incredibly diligent people that are just so aware of that of how important these things are. You know, no one's no one's allowed to let that slip. And um, but it's it's pretty funny. Like you, you end up lifting your leg. You smell methylated spirits somewhere, and you just lift your leg, ready for someone to spray your boot. Um, and that's sort of we we do the same thing in our gardens around our our collections of them. Um, we we spray our tools down, spray our boots down, and and all that works. Really critical. Better off to keep it out. Um, and it's also not just about Phytophthora It's about what other pathogens we might not know about. Um, so protecting, stopping it from getting in there in the first place is, is really where it's at. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Well, we already kind of talked about why are they so at risk when compared with other plants? Did you have anything else to say about that? Yeah. Um, I guess I might just mention the, the, the story and before we move on, I suppose is, is just that the, the wonderful thing about the Wallamode pine and its story is, is it's, it's always still evolving. The story is just is it's got heartbreak. It's got some hmm. amazing success, um, but it's also got yeah these wonderful team efforts and and these wonderful examples of global plant conservation in action. And some of the recent work that was publicised since the 2019-2020 fires was it sort of started where in the 2020 in the, in the, in the Black Summer bushfires the plants. The, the entire Wallamai National Park essentially burnt. 
Um, and everybody was watching what was called the Gospers Mountain Mega Fire at the time um, evolve and, and burn and burn and burn. And all the people involved in it were watching where these the fire was heading. Everyone knew that the fire was going to eventually impact the wild populations of these trees. And some of the wonderful decision makers in charge of all of this stuff made a call that something needed to be done to try and um, reduce the impacts of the fires. Um, I'd been involved in some other work that at the time was secret and got the call up from one of the lead scientists, Baron McKenzie, um, on, on the Thursday, just before the fire was about to impact one of these sites. And a team had, he'd been asked to assemble a team of people to go and build a sprinkler system in one of the wild populations to try and reduce the intensity of the fire and like try and wet down the, the leaf litter and and do something. Um, it sort of felt like I think everybody just felt something had to be done. All this years of work for such an incredible species, something needed to be done. And and I'd never thought I was going to be allowed to be in 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 one of those wild sites. Um, I didn't think I was my, any work I do. Most of my work is about growing them in the botanic gardens and, and looking after them, not doing the field, field work and research. And next thing um, I was helicoptered in with um, three other amazing people. And we, we built a sprinkler system in there. Um, it was incredibly uh, heavy drought conditions in New South Wales at the time. We didn't know if there was enough water in the in the creek lines down there, and um, we used pumps um, to to set this thing up. And we ended up building this thing just as the fire approached, sort of six or seven kilometres away. And and then it it was set up in a way where the incredible remote area fire teams from national parks were able to helicopter in there several times before the fire front hit to turn the sprinklers on. And then some even the true heroes, these guys from national parks, um, were dropped in there immediately after the fires, whilst things still burnt, and used parts of that sprinkler system to to put out fires that were burning on on some of the big clumps of of the Wallamai pines, and and absolutely saved a few of the the trees. And at the time, you know, the east coast of Australia was on fire, so that that story was kept kept quiet for a little while, and then when it was published. It, it, in I think you know one of the newspapers in in Sydney and and became global news that you know teams had done this thing to try and save and protect these trees. It became this good news story that that I think Australia really needed at the time. Like I mentioned earlier, the, it felt like the whole east coast of Australia was on fire. And next thing you know, people were talking about it in pubs. I was out with a friend like, and I heard people saying, did you hear they they saved the, these trees? They built a sprinkler system and did this thing. And, and I was like, wow, like the people really <laughs> cared. And and that then sort of built this groundswell. Like if you think that the work sort of in the announcement of, of the discovery of the species back in 1994 or around the late 90s, you know, over time the, the interest in the public um, sort of wanes with things like that. Then this sort of um, groundswell around the species started to happen again, and and that then tied in in a way that was fantastic. Where the other secret thing that had been going on was these scientists in the Wallamai Pine Recovery Team had been working for years on a, a secret project to establish two wild populations. Um, it's called translocation um, in in plant conservation, and that's the idea of trying to take. Um, plants that are grown up specifically for it and 
go and find places within the natural range of the species that might be critically endangered or endangered and plant them out and in the hope that they will then naturalize, um, which would be mm-hmm. that they grow up, set seed, they have, you know, sow seed and then their their progeny grow up and set seed. And, and once that's happened and you sort of get this cycle of them becoming self-sustaining, then they're considered to be naturalized and they become a natural population eventually. And that had actually been happening. And and some of our horticulturists and teams from the Botanic Gardens had also been involved in that. And a year before the fires, a few of us had actually been flown into the Wollamai National Park to be involved in these planting um, projects for two translocation sites. And unfortunately, the Black Summer fires also impacted those. And because of this groundswell that came out of the interest in the species, and, and it would have happened anyway, but the, there was just this sudden awesome enthusiasm from the decision makers up top that this needed to keep happening. This is a multi-generational experiment with multiple agencies to do this incredible thing. So uh, after the fires, there was the, the scientists um, led by Barry McKenzie got the project back again, went back out there and replanted out these two populations. And then those um, those are hopefully going to they're only little plants now. These things grow incredibly slowly, but this is going to be a multi generational project where hopefully these two populations can establish, and in maybe you know thirty, fifty, maybe a hundred years, we'll have two more populations of them out there, and the the species might be secured. And that's just sort of uh, it's this incredible story, and it is so much work, and such incredibly skilled and passionate people out there all doing it, and. Um, yeah, it's kind of exciting, and then finally that story got got told to the public as well, and um, and I think it 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 sort of helps drive this. That, that's this big story, but it helps drive that public interest and support in what we do, and people are people are understanding it. It's great. The plant people, like you said, this podcast for the freaks, right? But yeah. um, the the best thing is all the all the general public and the non planty people are, are really starting to get it and see just how important that stuff is in the face of climate change, and and this work is yeah. is informing it all. I think, mate, I think a lot of people, especially on social media, right, so I, I talk to the freaks on social media, <laughs> a lot of eco- ecology-minded people, right, and we need a win, mate, so it's really good to hear these stories every now and then because otherwise it's just depressing if we don't hear stories like this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and, and you know, sometimes people will ask those questions, they're like, why, you know, like the, every now and then, I, even I'll have a friend right. say, like, why? Why <laughs> do we spend all this money on these things? Yeah. But um you know, you hear, you watch a David Attenborough documentary and they talk about re- rewilding. Um, lots of people like to think of the cute and cuddly animals and that's important. But, you know, all this work that gets done on saving a species like the Wallamai pine, it it we learn so much from it that is going to inform all the work for saving and protecting the natural world in the future. Um, you know, the the threat from climate change is real the threat from deforestation and and all these human human created problems is very real and these things absolutely it's not just the wall of my pine you know this then means the science that comes out of that on the genetic work the the skill involved and the learnings from going out there and trying to plant 400 trees in the wild in these deep 
remote canyons and, and having them succeed, the work into protecting groves of trees from wildfire. Um, those things are really important lessons and they're the things that are, are going to enable humans to, to do some good for, for the planet and protect mm. these wonderful places and, and plants and animals. So we've touched on a few of the things that the teams learnt and, you know, sort of how this can, how this effort can help the world at large, like everyone who's doing conservation work. But what are some of the lessons that you've learnt on a personal level from this work? Yeah, I, I think I've touched on it um, a little bit. I mean, one of the things that I just think is fantastic and I've really learnt is the value of the contributions from all these different skills and these projects can't be successful just if it's just the horticulturists doing it or if it's just the scientists doing the research or if it's just the ecologists doing the assessment in the field or and I think I mentioned earlier like or or if there's no one there to tell the story these things um yeah. <laughs> otherwise the stories go nowhere and no one learns and you know it's it's that everyone's playing these roles and the teamwork um the passion that comes together it's it's really incredible. I, like I feel, I, I feel super privileged to be a part of even just this tiny little part of it. Um, and you know, and I'm just like, I'm not a scientist. I don't understand so much of the stuff these guys do at the level that they understand. But what I am, I'm an arborist and a horticulturist, and I understand that. And the respect that everybody gives each other, and acknowledgement of the the input. You know, our arborists provided advice on, you know the growing of the plants or the best way to plant them. Um, you know, our nursery people like figure out how to propagate them, you know, and and then the scientists actually do this molecular work and go, well, you need to plant that that genetic material next to that one in the hope that when they eventually set cones or they pollinate each other, that's going to be the most best mix of genetics. You know, it's 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 incredibly complex, yet it then comes together for this beautiful project. And and I think that's we'll we'll hopefully see success from it. And yeah, it's, it's great. It's a good thing. You're, you're learning all the time and then you get to be around those incredible people and just learning via osmosis about about their skill sets and, and their in, insights as well. I think that's a really important point. Um, we had Roz Gledo on the, on the show uh, a while back now and she came on. She's a professor of plant science. So she came on. Um, she actually lectures people about how plants work. And she said something along the lines of, if you want a plant to actually grow, you don't call a plant biologist or a botanist, you call a horticulturist. <laughs> because yeah. apparently the botanists can't keep them alive. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, like, I mean, I mentioned I've killed a whole load of um, dwarf mountain pines, but <laughs> not 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 rare ones in the bush, ones in my bathroom that I've been growing legitimately and and where they've been bought ethically. And um, But like most horticulturists will tell you, you know, we've probably killed more plants than a lot of people have ever tried to grow. And just by trying, just by just by giving it a go to, you know, buy a wall of my pine, have a go, um, put put one in on your front porch in a pot and sit and learn from it, look at it, observe it. It's yeah, we learn so much, and yeah, that's why horticulturists are so valuable to the whole thing. Our skill sets um, in in the actual growing of things, um, it's one thing to you can do all the research as well, um, but if you're not actually growing it and figuring out how to keep it alive, it's mm -hmm. it, that's the important bit. Exactly right. Do you have any advice for someone who's listening right now that is sort of thinking, okay, this sounds really cool. Like 
maybe a career in conservation is for me. Do you have advice for anyone who's sitting here thinking about that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Uh, there's a whole lot of us that are really passionate about this where I work and I think the the best advice I have is for starters, get out there and just engage with it. Um, whether that's volunteer, you know, whether you're a kid in school, whether you're a retiree that wants to volunteer or whether you're someone that's working in IT and wants to career change, um, whether it's volunteering with your land care group, whether it's volunteering with a growing friends group at a botanic gardens, um, get out there, meet people, listen to podcasts like this one, um, all these other great things because most of us, when we were in school, when I was in school, no one taught me or told me that there were all these career paths out there. In conservation, there is literally a career path for every personality and every interest, mm. be that we just touched on it, be that the people doing the growing. You might love growing stuff. You might want to work in a nursery. You might love getting your hands dirty. You might be want to climb trees right through to you might love science and, and chemistry and genetics and want to do the researching um, you might want to be out there in the field as an ecologist um, doing floristic surveys or fauna surveys, you know, and uh, it's you can take it anywhere you want and every single role is mm -hmm. is as important as the other in, in all of it coming together. And I think that's the key is, is think about yourself, think about what you love doing. Do you love getting your hands dirty? Do you love this? What, what role do you think you'd like to play? Um, and then once you get into it, the sky's the limit. You can move around everywhere. Like I said, I came from a, a gardening background into arboriculture, you know, more now into managing natural areas and thinking of myself as a land manager. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just great. So mm. just do it. <laughs> just do it. And is it really just that easy of just, you know, searching on your job board, just searching ecology or conservation or something like that, and then just applying for jobs? Is it really that easy? Um. Look, I think it's it's always worth, you know, we're lucky in Australia, we have access to great education. Um, doesn't have to be university. Um, personally, I, I haven't, I didn't go to university. I came up through a, a TAFE or technical sort of trade background. Um, there's so many ways you can, you can get that experience. Um, getting, doing some courses, there's great courses in conservation land management, um, certainly in New South Wales that, that run through TAFE. Um, but then also, you know, we deal with some wonderful people that have come through the environmental science background at university. Um, yeah, there's so many ways into it. Getting some qualifications, getting some hands-on experience. Um, there's there's all these ways to do it. And sometimes just, just volunteering and asking people what they recommend is a great way to do that. And, or come into a botanic gardens and chat. You'll see us all working in the field. Um, our staff is it's part of their job to to talk to people and, and engage people on plants and and horticulture they'll give you some advice and um yeah is a horticultural qualification smiled upon like is that like a i've got a diploma in horticulture would that get me far in conservation yeah definitely i mean i guess with a lot of things it's it gets more and more specialized um yeah and it's about so maybe you could out. be the one who's pulling weeds or spraying weeds or something like that that's your foot in the door that's right. Yeah. The, the sort of bush regeneration, um, all those things there's, and, and you can shift around and, and often getting that sort of entry level qualification, whether it's a certificate two, certificate three kind of level, um, right up to, yeah, diplomas or, or university. Um, but you can all, you can move sideways, you can go up, you can go down. There's, there's, yeah, it's great. Totally. 
So at the end of every episode, Ian, I always like to ask our guests one question. Is there anything else yep. you'd like the listeners to know about? <laughs> oh, look, I, I'd i be remiss of me if I didn't just, once again, just fly the flag of, of Botanic Gardens. Um, you know, we're in Australia and globally. Often people, I think, I, I took my brother and, and his partner around the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens at Mount Tomar about a year ago, and, and he said, you know, I've been doing this for... It was 20 something years and he actually said afterwards he's like mate i didn't even know what it is that you guys did i didn't know what you did for a living like um and essentially that we manage living collections um that's that's sort of the terminology we refer to them and that our role they're not just pleasure gardens they're not you know absolutely they're there for people to come and have a picnic and engage with with plants in beautiful spaces and but they serve this role in in conservation and science and our collections, you know, every plant in our living collection has a has a tag on it. It's numbered. It's GPS. It has. Uh, we we manage it all on a record system. Um, we know where they came from around the world. We know who collected them and when. Um, and they're used for be it simple things like just we might take measurements of our trees so that people can look at growth rates of our trees on our own sites, right through to the scientists um, taking specimens um leaf specimens to do genetic work um and it feeds into this huge global network um in australia we're, we're in a network called uh, bgans botanic gardens australia and new zealand and we collaborate with all other gardens around that network and that ties into a, a bigger network of botanic gardens conservation international and yeah whether it's kew gardens in england um you know some of the amazing gardens like huntington and stuff in in america and everybody's out there working away tirelessly to to save plants, conserve them, study them, but also to share share plants and horticulture with with people. So, yeah, got to fly that flag. That's what we want people to know. Well said. Grab a coffee, grab a sanger, sit down on the grass, and just have, spend some time with a loved one and just feel good. Yep, that's right. And plants, plants, plants. <laughs> just be surrounded by plants, mate. Nothing better. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for your time, Ian. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. It was awesome. Even if you come from a commercial horticulture background, you can make the switch into a different part of the industry. Botanic gardens and conservation companies are filled with people that come from diverse backgrounds, and if you want to move into one of those directions, it's highly achievable if you start making steps now. That may look like getting a relevant qualification, or it may just look like putting a resume up on hortpeople.com for free, in multiple categories to help employers desperate for staff find you.